Hello, and welcome to Trips Tennis Talk, the amateur podcast about professional tennis. Thanks for finding the pod, thanks for downloading, and always appreciate you listening. It is time for a day four discussion, centering around what happened at Indian Wells today. Let's get right into it. Topic number one, my viewing day. As usual, play started at 11 a.m. my time. I didn't spend all day on the couch watching all the matches, if I am being totally honest. Today is a day that I could have done that because it was Saturday, and rest is never a bad thing on a Saturday, and sitting on the couch all day watching tennis and resting would have been a legitimate option. However, when play started, I went out to do my daily steps, my daily step goal of 15,000 steps. That was a good time of day to do it. And not only did I not watch the match in my house, when I was out and about, I didn't follow it on my phone either. I didn't find a radio option. I wasn't streaming tennis TV on my little phone and putting it in my pocket and just listening to the audio of the streaming. I was listening to other things when it was happening. This is a cardinal sin, or at least it would have been a cardinal sin to the to the me of 10 years ago. I'm learning to give myself a little bit more grace when it comes to this area. When you have adult responsibilities and all this, sometimes you have to put yourself first. And I think I'm at the point in my tennis watching career where I've earned some periods like this. I don't necessarily have to be quote-unquote on the job or quote-unquote covering or I don't have to feel the obligation to watch every single match at every single waking moment of the day. And this is a relatively recent phenomenon. I've been slowly gravitating toward this over the last couple of years. Originally out of necessity, because with job responsibilities and life responsibilities increasing for me over the last three, four, five, six, seven years... Originally, I was frustrated when tennis tournaments would come around. I'd be frustrated that I couldn't spend as much time watching it as I could. And time for a coffee sip. This is also a good way to gather my thoughts without flubbing. Taking another coffee sip. But increasingly in life, I'm trying to do or I'm trying to abide by the philosophy of do what's best for you. And I say that as somebody who typically does not do what's best for me uh, in terms of overworking, being extremely regimented, being extremely ambitious, choosing to do a lot of things having a lot of hobbies, um, having long days, having a lot of responsibilities. 
And at some point, following this stuff can feel like work. At the very least, it's a time commitment where you have to sort of focus on what's happening, even if you just want to have a passing knowledge of something to say. And um, see, it's even hard for me to say this right now, but sometimes you have to have a little grace and you can, you can take a couple of hours off to go do something that you want to do in your personal life. Again, this is a radical thought to the trip that would have been watching this stuff 10 or 12 years ago. And I just laid out my personal life reasons for wanting to do it, choosing to prioritize a personal thing over, let's be honest, watching television. But it also has merit on the tennis side. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's okay to not watch a bad match. Sometimes it's okay to, if you see the writing on the wall, leave a match in progress. Sometimes it's okay to not watch a match that you know is going to be a blowout. If an order of play is not exciting, sometimes it's okay to not watch the entirety of the order of play. And this gets into my topic 1A, the quality of the tournament. And I think it's been fine. It's been okay. It has not been an A-level tournament so far, but it hasn't been bad. It has had a B-level vibe to me. It's sort of a workmanlike vibe. There's definitely the feeling of watching the matches for the sake of watching the matches and occasionally they have an interest excuse me they have an interesting storyline or they sorry or they have an interesting patch of play but there hasn't been a great match from start to finish that's really meant something to the draw and to tennis as a whole and when you have these tournaments that are stretched out like this, with this slow opening where the number one seed didn't play his match till the very end of the fourth day, it's a, it's, a, it's a weird vibe. It's a slow, slow rolling start. It's, um, maybe it's Lynchian. Maybe it's, uh, you know, Twin Peaks The Return sort of vibe in the slowness in the getting going here, especially, you know, early on getting going, like I just said. And this is something that tennis is going to be implementing more of. And again, I don't necessarily think it's for the better. It might make them more money. It might give employees more days to work. But it's, uh, it's making the players work more days, which is not a good thing in the player empowerment era in world sport. They don't, players don't necessarily want to spend 13 days in Madrid and then 13 days in Rome, do they? It's one less tournament they could be playing. They could play two tournaments in 14 days instead of one tournament in 12 or 13 days. And for the fans... That's a lot of time. You know, these first four days where not much happened, multiply that by three, or four actually, multiply that by four, 
and you're spending two weeks of your life, a year, watching days like this with slow action, rolling action, action that's working up, action that is still crescendoing. Like, imagine what if the tournament didn't start till today? What if the tournament didn't start till tomorrow? That would have been fine. Sure, you would have missed some stuff, but not really earth-shattering stuff here. And that is my point. The first four days of the tournament have not been earth-shattering. However, there was a match that stood above the rest so far, and that is uh, topic two, talking about Fritz versus Shelton that unfurled in the afternoon session today. It was a good match. It was intriguing. There were match play situations. And for the first time in a while, let's get into a deep dive on what happened here. And why not? Let me reach down. Let's get the handy-dandy notebook here. Let's turn back one page to this match. See what I just did there? You might call that a Rush Limbaugh. This is a Rush Limbaugh. Okay, I think the point is made. Um, Okay, this match. Play-by-play sort of thing. The highlight of the first set, Fritz lost his serve from 40-love up at 2-all. And Shelton got the break. And besides that, it was an extremely serve-bot set. In the first set here, let's just go through it quickly. Game by game, hold the 15. Hold the 15. Hold the love. Hold the 15. Then the break game, which is a little longer. Hold the love. Hold the love. Hold the love. Hold the love. Hold the 15. Hold the love. And that was the first set. So literally, the first set was about five points long. The five points from 2-2, 40 love, to the end of the game, leading to the break five points later, that was the entire first set. Second set was pretty similar. Second set by game. Let's see here. Hold the love. Hold the 15. Hold the love. Hold the 15. Hold the love. Longer game, some deuces. Hold the 30. Hold the 15. And that gets us to Taylor Fritz serving at 4 6 4 4. And in this game, he was down 15 30. Yeah. 4 6 4 4 15 30. And at, at this point in the match, It felt like Fritz was going to lose as the defending champion, taking on an upstart in Ben Shelton. And Fritz won the next couple points to get through that game. And from that point on, uh, it felt like Fritz... I'm sorry. It felt like Shelton missed his chance, and Fritz got through the rest of it. Um, You know, he broke the next game. Fritz did. And that's the classic tennis scenario of one player has break points, does not convert. Then in the very next game, that same player dumps their own serve after failing to take the lead. That is a tennis trope, 
A, that is a time-tested tennis trope that we saw today. And once it went to a third set, you felt that Fritz had it in the bag. And he did. To lose the second set, Shelton hit. He, Shelton missed a sitter that was just yikes. It was one of the worst misses that you'll see. And it was definitely one of the worst misses I've seen in a while in a shot that essentially lost him the match. It lost him the set in that moment. And, you know, that ultimately ended up leading to him losing the match. In the third set, still quick games. Hold to 15. Hold to 30. Hold to 15. Or, sorry, hold to love. Hold to love. Hold the love. So now it's 3-2 Fritz up on serve. Serving at 2-3. Shelton lost his serve, and that was that. Fritz rode out the one break to get the victory. 4-6-6-4-6-3 after being down 4-6-4-4. So what would that be? So that would have been 8-3. So Fritz would have won 8 of the last 11 games after being six points from losing halfway in the match. And getting into the psychological stuff here for Fritz, Fritz won the match today by being a good match player, by recognizing the competitive situation, by being incredibly aware of the scoreboard, and by using that to his advantage. And not only being aware of those situations, but being more adept at handling that situation than his opponents. In the past, Fritz has not played well despite being in form, quote-unquote. Last year in Cincinnati, Fritz completely outplayed Medvedev, but ended up losing because in the pressure points, Fritz did not win them. Similar thing in the Australian Open this year. Who did he, who did Fritz even play there? Hold on a second. Fritz. Uh, let's see. Australian Open, he lost to Alexi Poprin. That's right. And Fritz coming in was considered a title contender, and he lost in the second round, dropping a tiebreak along the way to Alexi Poprin, losing 6-2 in the fifth, and he was healthy and uncon and uncompromised. So there are definitely examples of Fritz being a little bit of a choker, losing winnable matches. Today was a match he easily could have lost, but he won it. And this gets into the more psychological side of it. Fritz is the defending champion here. He has the hometown angle of this as well. And we another time tested tennis trope is players doing well at tournaments where they've done well in the past. Once Djokovic started winning at the Australian Open, it became a place that was easier for him to win at. Once Federer became the Wimbledon champion, it became a place he was known for winning at, and he kept winning there. Once Rafa got seven or eight Roland Garroses, he went to the God-tier status, and he kept winning more Roland Garros's. Um Fritz is the defending champion. He is on that roll. 
once you're on that roll, you want to take advantage of that for as long as possible. Because once the roll stops, it can be hard to get it going again. But maybe Fritz is uh, Fritz has found his best tournament, perhaps. And if you look at the draw, next he plays uh, Jose Baez, and that's a winnable match. Fritz should probably win that. Uh, then he would be drawn to face one two one two one two Molchan or Fuchovic. That's a good draw. Taylor Fritz might be sticking around for a while. He might make it to next weekend, and it's not unplausible, given the way that the draw has broken, that he could be a legitimate contender to go back-to-back here. And if that happened, there would have to be a critical reappraisal of Taylor Fritz, including by me. One more thing on the match from my notebook. The break points. In the first set, there was one break point, which was converted. In the second set, there was one break point, which was converted. The third set was a little, you know, there were a couple more. But of the 85 plus 71. Ooh, I wonder what that is. What's 85 plus 71? Oh, God. 85, 95, 105, 115, 125, 125, 135, 145, 155, 156. Of the 156 points played, only five of them were break points in three sets, and they had a perfect conversion rate for much of that time. So it was a serve bot match. However, it was a somewhat entertaining serve bot match. There was doubt as to the winner at a certain point in that match. Um, Statistically, just one more layer of stats. Let's look at the stats, let me see if there's anything notable in here from the stats from that match. One hour, 52 minutes. Hmm. Dead air, dead air, not cutting this, not cutting this. Okay, first serve percentage pretty even. First serve points one pretty even. Here's the difference. Second serve points one. Fritz 84%, Shelton 47. So off the ground, Fritz was much better. Yeah, let's talk about that. So one of the texts I sent out during this match was complaining about the last 15 years of the typical American pro player. The male tennis player in the last 15 years is big serve, big forehand, shame about the rest of the game because it's not so good. This is mostly typified by a guy like John Isner, but the whole crop has really uh, fallen victim to this, even going back to James Blake. Blake was all serve, all forehand, nothing else. Isner, all serve, all forehand, nothing else. Query, serve, forehand, nothing else. Tiafo, serve, forehand, nothing else. Feel free to at me on that one. Fritz, honestly, serve, forehand, maybe volleys, not much else. Shelton, 
big serve, big forehand, still working on the rest of the stuff. You need all the shots to be able to win a Grand Slam in this Euro-dominated game. The European players can do all the stu- all the shots. The American players can't. And that is why we are approaching the 20-year anniversary later this year of the last American male Grand Slam singles titles. And the match today, just like I've been saying, serve-bot match, there were short points and there were not a lot of rallies because they're not very good at rallying, if I'm being totally honest. I think the point is made on that. Taylor Fritz moving on. Good showing from Ben Shelton as well. And finishing up on this topic, let's hear from Taylor Fritz after the match. Here are his comments. Let's listen in. Patience, Taylor. It's really come back for you to start the defending tour here in New Orleans. How do you feel now? I feel really good kind of just getting through that match. I think that was a incredibly tough first match for me to play uh he's he's really tough and you know all, all it took in the first set was one break point one break and i never never really had any other chances to to get onto his serve so you know really happy to get through that What's your uh, just long-term kind of opinion of Shelton and his potential, and where would you kind of rank him among the young Americans or young guys in general? He's he's really good. I think it's too early to tell, and it's I think it's a really dangerous thing that people do putting crazy expectations on on young American players. So um, he's he's really talented, and he's he's super dangerous if he's playing well, just with the serve and the weapons that he has. You know. Um, like I said, I made you make one mistake on my serve. I make one mistake on my serve in the first set and drop it, and that's the set's over. He's serving way too well, so um, he definitely has a really bright future. He's got a super explosive game, and he has a lot of stuff that he can still, um, a lot of stuff that he will improve on. Uh, I mean, I would say the the leader. Obviously, I'm the top the top ranked. But I mean, who knows what's gonna what it's gonna be? You know, in a year or two, I can see I can see different parts of the years where just depending on depending on defending points, keeping points, where other other people take take the uh, take the spot. But um, I don't know. There's a lot of really good American players, and it's exciting to see. And I'm very, I guess, happy, honored, fortunate to be at the top of it right now. But I wouldn't, I guess, think of like a leader. I just, I'm, I'm the highest ranked. Taylor, congrats on on a real great win. Uh, you just mentioned, um, hey, we put all these crazy expectations on on young tennis players. Um, you might say that. That's done in other sports. People wondered how the young LeBron would do, or Mahomes, or whatever. What do you, what do you think? What do you think that's about? Do you think that's just uh, the nature of sports, human nature, or is it particular to to our sport? It's it happens in every sport. I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it happens in every sport. There's a lot of expectations put on people, and I just speak to it because for me, I felt like it was it was something I maybe wasn't ready for when I was like 18, 19, and I think it. Um, 
I was too young at the time to, I guess, properly deal with it. And I think it uh, probably hurt me. And I, I see it, it. I see it hurt a lot of young players because one of the most dangerous things that you can be dealing with in, in sports is having a lot of expectations and having a lot of pressure. It stops you from sometimes uh, playing and competing as freely as you would like. So um, it, it's it's a pretty common thing, though, obviously. Talk a little bit more about the pressure. So three or four years ago, you're out there on the court. You're feeling not very well. You're losing, blah, blah, blah. But all of a sudden, it feels like you are locked in, playing more, more consistent. Yeah, I think, look, I think for me, what, what made me a really good player and gave me a lot of success early on when I was like 17 or 18 was how um, aggressive I was and how big I was hitting the ball and you know I could do that because I was I was free I was like I'm not supposed to beat these guys I'm the younger guy and then all of a sudden I remember I remember thinking this uh, I had you know some good wins when I was 18 one year later when I was 19 I barely beat a guy that I was supposed to beat and I thought to myself wow if I had this win one year ago it would have been the best one of my whole life we're only a year now in the future, and I'm supposed to win that. It's bad if I don't win that match. So it's like um, I just feel like there was a lot of pressure on me, uh, and it just tightened me up. I wasn't playing my game as much as, as uh, I guess should have. I wasn't. I got away from playing what what made me good. And uh, like I said, there's some deal with it better than others, and I think. You know, at the age of 17, 18, 19, maybe you're not the most well-equipped to uh, deal with that stuff. Now it's different. Now I'm older, and the pressure I feel is just the pressure that I put on myself. I, I don't care about what other people are saying and what pressure other people may be putting on me to succeed, and, and that's kind of just a lesson you need to learn. I mean, yeah, I think I wish I would have I wish I would have cared a lot less about about all that stuff when I was when I was younger. And I, I think that I could have had, um, you know, the the progress in my game that I've had in the last couple of years, maybe sooner. But um, I guess I don't know. It's a lesson learned. And if you would uh, Taylor, just go back to today's match, I mean, going in tons of pressure, defending champion home home court, so to speak, out against a, you know, guy coming off a great Aussie run and bombing it. After. But you hung in there great. How, just, are, are you satisfied, uh, greatly satisfied about your fight and your consistency in coming back? Just talk about that dynamic. Yeah, I'm super happy with how I didn't panic under the circumstances of being down a set, the guy's serving bombs. It's not winning points on his serve, obviously, defense. Let me just interject here for a second. It really irritates me when journalists don't ask questions and when they give you a command or when they tell you to do something. Talk about the match. Like, I get it, man. But can't you just invest the two seconds of effort to phrase it this way? Can you talk about the match? And then, you know, if you're an asshole player, you can say, yes, and then move on. I mean, and again, 
take 10 seconds of effort to say, um, you know, um, in the first set, how did you feel at this point? Something. Something. Can we just be a little more effort? Can we have a little more effort than talk now? Because I need to write a story and I'm on deadline. Go. That irritates me. Anyway, let's continue with the comments here. Running champion, a lot of pressure. He's playing well. It's uh, I I didn't panic. I I stayed calm. I changed some things around. I kind of just figured out how I wanted to play and what I what I needed to do to get those service breaks and get myself back into the match and. Um, I'm super happy to, to come through that. It's a really, really tough second-round match. And just a little bit on how you tweaked, how you, what, what changes? I mean, I couldn't, couldn't return to serve in the first set. I think a big change I made was, was also he was killing me with the kick serve. So a big change I made was moving up uh, a lot closer and just holding a backhand grip. And if he was going to hit the flat bomb to my forehand, I was just going to try to chip it low. Because um, it's not like I'd have the time to take a swing on my forehand anyway when it's coming 140 miles an hour. And, and then if he serves a big one on my backhand, I already have the backhand grip. So kind of just took the returns early and shortened up the swings to, you know, put more in the court. And I thought that that made a big difference in just making him play a bit more and me putting more returns in the court. Just returning four years ago, are you much better now when you're returning? Other than, you know, the forehand, the backhand, all of that. When you're getting back there, we just say, I got to know where it's going. Sorry, what, what do you mean? So do you return much better now than you did, say, four years ago? Yeah, for sure. I think the biggest, one of the biggest improvements in my game from from two years ago is is the return, I think. Before I would only stand up and stand in the same position and try to return, and I think I've made some some tweaks to where I stand. I can mix up where I stand as well, and I definitely put way more returns in the court than I used to, for sure. Uh, just how was it being the defending champ? Was it was it fun playing as the defending champion? Was it a burden thinking about defending a thousand points? Just what was the dynamic? I'm not I'm not trying not to think too much about defending a thousand points because you know how all the players like to think I would say is now I think is every year you start over at zero and the race is the race that'll be the rankings at the end of the year so yeah I'm defending a thousand points but I'm also six in the race this year so like let's just have a good result let's let's keep moving let's keep a good position in the race and and we'll go we'll go from there so I'm it felt great I guess winning the match and walking out on court and the crowd cheering like that you know, brought back really amazing memories from from last year, and just kind of like playing my home tournament. I was very happy to be back. I've been happy all week being here. So, trying not to stress too much about the defending a thousand points, because at the end of the day, it's it is about the race. Thanks. Topic three: the return of Carlos Alcaraz. The match was completely unremarkable, not even going to address it at all. Just destroyed Tanasi Kokonakis 3-3, three and three. never in doubt, never a question. It was more about the return of the recent world number one and number one seed here. He did play the Paris Masters. He won two matches there, 
But besides that, let's step back and look at the recent big tournament history of Mr. Carlos. He won the U.S. Open. That was in September. That was six months ago. So in the last six months, since he became world number one and subsequently lost it, um, Paris Masters. Two wins, dismissed in the quarters. Did not play the ATP Finals. Did not play the Australian Open. A couple more months go by, and now here we are. So yes, I understand he did make the quarters in Paris, but this tournament is much more visible than that one because of calendar placement and all this. So to me, tonight's match marks the the return of Carlos Al- not even the return the debut of him as a grand slam champion the debut of him as a number 1 caliber player and a top seed caliber player and he handled it like that type of player should completely overwhelmingly in terms of destroying his opponent it'll be interesting to watch him going forward if he wins the tournament, Alcaraz is going to go back to number one, and he would displace Novak Djokovic, who is currently number one. And um, Djokovic is currently... Uh, how, how, what, what pun can I make here? He would... Uh, an Alcaraz winning here would quarantine Djokovic from the number one ranking. Topic four, score read. Today was the second and final day of the round of 64, Women's results today. Badosa beat Perezaz Diaz 6-2-7-5. Kirstea beat Keys 6-1 retired. That match was 5-love and 15 minutes or something. I saw that earlier. Anz Jabor made her return coming off of injury. She beat, Magda- she beat uh, Freck 4-6-6-4-6-1. Jabor said on court afterwards that she admits she's not 100% recovered from her injuries, but she got a win. Andrescu beat Stearns, 4-6-6-4-6-3. Rubacana beat Kennan, 7-6-7-6. Trevisan beat Brangle, 5-7-6-1-6-2. Kasatkina beat Maria, 6-2-6-1. Garcia beat Galfi. 6-1-6-7-6-4. Sviantek beat Claire Liu, 6-love, six 6-1. Six Stopping briefly to talk about Sviantek. Sviantek lost at the Australian Open to Rubakina. Here are Sviantek's set scores since then. 6-love, six 6-1, six 6-love, six 6-1, six 6-3, six 6-love, six 6-1, six 6-1, six 6-love, six six 6-4, 6-2, then she actually lost a match, and today, 6-love, six 6-1. Six I mean, come on, Iga, don't eat all the bagels and breadsticks yourself. I mean, I mean, you, you don't have to literally want all the games. Save some games for the rest of us. Jeez. Uh, continuing with the score read, Fernandez beat Navarro, 6-2, 6-4. Adad Maya beat Siniakova 5-7-7-6-6-3. Para beat Samsonova 2-6-7-6-7-6. That's an interesting stat. 
So Samsonova won more games and lost. Vondrosheva beat Buzkova 6-1, 6-1. Radikanu has got consecutive wins at a big tournament again. Beat Lynette, the Aussie semifinalist, 7-6, 6-2. Gracheva beat Mardich, 6-3, 6-2. And in a surprise here, Muhova beat former champion and California resident, former California champion, current California resident, Victoria Azarenka, 7-6-6-3. On the men's side, they were also finishing up the round of 64 today. And here are the scores from what happened. Taylor Fritz beat Ben Shelton, 4-6, 6-4-6-3. Carlos Alcaraz beat Tanasi Kokonakis, 6-3-6-3. Felix Ajay Aliasim beat Pedro Martinez, Seven six six four. Um, Fritz, or sorry, a Felix Ajay Aliasim had a fifteen plus break points, and the first set was almost an hour and a half. That was a long one. Andy Murray did not play a long one for once. He defeated the lucky loser Radu Albot six four six three. Holger Runa beat Mackenzie McDonald seven five six three. Yannick Sinner, who's been going under the radar, beat Richard Gasquet, 6-3-7-6. Tommy Paul beat Jan Leonard Struff, 6-3-6-3. Francisco Sarundolo beat Jack Sock, 4-6-6-3-6-4. Isn't Sarundolo defending Miami semifinal points? That sounds about right. Hubert Hercotch beat Alexi Poprin, 6-3-6-3. Two Alexi Poprin references in one Masters 1000 podcast. Interesting. Jack Draper beat fellow Brit Daniel. Or let me say that one again. British player Jack Draper defeated British player Daniel Evans, 6-4-6-2. And now British player Jack Draper will now face British player Andy Murray on Monday. Fucevic beat Damon R, 6-4-6-2. Manorino got another win. Beat Lorenzo Musetti, 6-4-6-4. Sebastian Baez, not Jose Baez, that's my bad. I said Jose Baez earlier. Correction, Sebastian Baez beat Rinky Hijikata, 6-3-6-1. Stan Wawrinka beat Miramir Kikmanovic, 7-6-6-4. Stan, two Masters 1000 wins in a row. Well done. Molchan beat Chorich, 6-3-6-3. Yeah, Chorich better enjoy those 1,000 Cincinnati points while he's got them for the next five months because he hasn't done much since. Talon Greekspor beat Pea, 7-6-7-6. And those were your scores from today. Let's jump. I'm going to skip topic five for a second. I'm going to go to topic six since I just mentioned him, Stan Vavrinka. There's a good feature on atptour.com, an interview with Stan. I'm gonna, you know, where obviously he gives some direct quotes. I'm gonna read that now to change up the format of the podcast a little bit. Okay, question: You can see how much fun you still have with the fans on court, and everyone shows how much they love watching you play. How cool is that for you to experience? 
Stan Vavrenka answers, quote, Of course, it's always special. That's one of the main reasons why I keep playing tennis. I enjoy what I'm doing. I'm passionate about it. The emotion that I get from the fans, from the people in each tournament, from the support that I can get in matches is always going to be special. I want to enjoy that as much as I can because the day that I will stop, there will be no return. Question. When you're first starting as a pro, players worry about results and sometimes forget to enjoy it and have fun. To what extent do you have more fun now than when you started? Answer. I think I always enjoyed it. I think I've always been passionate about that. I never forgot why I started when I was young. It was to play a game. Swinging a tennis racket with balls against someone, it's the game, it's the sport. Even if some days are not that easy, you always have to push yourself. You have to have great discipline. I love the work, I love the process to get there too, so I'm lucky and happy that I enjoy what I have to do to be at my top level and also when I play matches, it doesn't matter which court, which big stadium, small stadium. For me, I always enjoy it and I always appreciate the sport. Q. You mentioned the process. A lot of the time, that's the least fun part of your job. How are you able to continue to enjoy doing the hard work after all these years? Answer. I think you need to see it as the big picture. The day you stop your sport, there is no return. There is no way back because it's impossible to stop after 30 and then try to come back. It's almost impossible. It's so tough. And then you have to see what is also tough is I'm getting really old for my sport, but I'm still really young in my life. After tennis, there are still so many years to do other stuff, so altogether, I want to enjoy as much as possible. It's a privilege to be a tennis player. It's a privilege to be playing at that level, to be playing in the biggest tournaments in the world. As long as I'm feeling competitive with what I'm doing, that I feel like I can beat the top players, I'm enjoying that. Question. You mentioned that you're still young in life, but do you think there will ever be something again like the feeling of winning a close tennis match? That's a nice little uh, slanted question there, ATPTour.com. Anyway, here's Stan's answer. I think we all have different visions of what we're doing. We all have a different way. That's the beauty of tennis. There is not one rule. The only rule is about hard work and discipline, but the rest, there are many ways of being at the top. Many ways of winning tournaments and being at the top of your game. There are many ways of practicing. Many ways of having different technique. And that's the beauty of the sport. Question. You made a nice post when you returned to the top 100. How special was that accomplishment to show you are still here? Answer. As long as I feel competitive, I want to keep going. But it's also to remind people not to forget where you come from and what was your dream when you were young. It doesn't matter if I won three Grand Slams, if I achieved way more than I could dream of. It still has to be special. If you want to keep pushing yourself after 30, and you want to still be passionate about that, things have to be special. Question. What was your biggest dream when you were young? Answer. My dream was to be a professional tennis player, so at that time it was to be top 100 in the world. Q. All year, you've shown a very good level against a lot of good players. Do you feel that you are right there with them? A. I feel competitive. I know that when I enter the court, most of the time I can beat my opponent. 
I'm not young anymore. Things are a bit more difficult also to keep going back-to-back-to-back days to push through a tournament. But I still believe that I can win tournaments. I don't know which level of tournament, but of course I want to win a trophy before stopping. Q. You still have the shots that you can go and hit whatever shot you want. How does it feel to physically still have the ability to play the tennis you want? A. It's why I keep practicing, why I keep pushing myself. I know what abilities I have. I know all the work that's put in that I have to do to be at that level. Of course it's great and I'm happy with it, but I want to keep pushing for more. Last question. If you can pick one match in which you had the most beautiful emotions of any, which would it be and why? Answer. It's tough to say, but I would probably pick the French Open final against Novak Djokovic. It's tough to pick one because I've had so many. I'm lucky I have many big memories, but the French Open has always been special. In France, winning the title after winning in juniors is something really special. And that was an interview with Stan Wawrinka there. Something a little bit different for you. That was topic six. Going back to topic five, let's take a quick look at the draws after the conclusion of the round of 64 and where I'm at with the contenders and such. With the women's draw, top half, women's draw is pretty easy. In the top half, Sviantek is the clear overwhelming favorite. I really don't think Anz Jabor is going to be a factor. Maybe Carolyn Garcia. Maybe the winner of Rabakana Badosa could be a challenger to Sviantek in the top half, but I don't see it. Bottom half, Sabalenka has got to be the favorite. So, shocking statement. The top two seeds in a tennis draw are the favorites to make a final. Um, coming out of the bottom half, if not Sabalenka, could be anybody. Maybe Goff, um, maybe Kvitova, um, I, but I would definitely make Sabalenka the favorite there. Men's draw, top half, after seeing the good performance today, Alcaraz has got to be the favorite there. Um, Alcaraz or Fritz, I would look for t- one of those two guys to be the top half finalist. Bottom half, definitely Medvedev is big number one. I would put Rublev second place there. So that's where I think we're at with uh, contenders at the moment. Also looking at the draw, there's some good matches here. And I don't want to necessarily go through them now since I'm just about to read the schedule. And I'd read half the same stuff over. So let's just get into that. Yeah? Let's uh, go to the schedule here. Hey, I forgot one thing. And this is from yesterday, but it's important enough that I think it's worth to go back and discuss. So I did not listen to Stefanos Tsitsipas' pre-tournament press conference, but I heard from listening to uh, other things that he was downplaying his chances in press, like telling the journalists flat out, I don't think I can win, I'm not going to make it. And that's a very unusual statement to make. So first, I've got his pre-tournament presser from three days ago 
rigged up here, I'm interested to hear these comments. So let's take a few minutes to do that. Let me, I might skip stuff. It's a 10 minute video and I don't necessarily want to play it for 10 minutes, but I want to find the, the relevant stuff here. So let's, um, let's figure this out. Steph, welcome back to the desert. Uh, we know you had a little uh, setback having to pull out of Bacapuco, so just give us an update on how you're feeling uh, ahead of the first Masters 1000. I am uh, still in recovery. Um, I won't be pretending or, you know, uh, trying to say that I'm the favorite in this tournament or that I have chances of doing well in these uh, two the next two tournaments because that would be um, that would be wrong. So uh, I don't see myself as uh, one of the favorites for the the next two tournaments. Uh, uh, I don't. I personally I've haven't said it uh, a lot of times in my career, but I don't think um, I will be capable of going deep. Uh, but so far, the main priority is getting my body ready and uh, fixed for. Uh, for the clay court swing. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, Hold on. So, dear listener, he just made air quotes when he <laughs> said fixed. Like, what the hell, man? Hold on a minute. Uh, but so far, the main priority is getting my body ready and uh, fixed <laughs> for uh, for the clay court swing. Um, I got to listen to that one I'm more time. I'm enjoying being around the tennis for, uh, for the clay court swing. Um, I'm enjoying being around the tennis. I like uh, tournaments like this. I like being uh, a participant and uh, yeah, aiming for like you know titles and aiming for big things and Masters uh, 1000 events. But um, I am pretty sure it uh, it won't be uh, my best performance uh, in the next couple of weeks. Any questions? What? Whoa, I gotta stop right there. What? Have Have you guys ever heard anybody say that? Like, holy crap, man. <laughs> okay, let's keep listening. Now I'm now I want to hear this. So if um if that's how you're feeling about where you are physically, what's the advantage to actually playing the tournament as opposed to just practicing? Sometimes, uh, you know, you're you're being given difficult tasks and uh, decisions that you need to take, and it's difficult um, to always act the right way. There's a factor of, you know, I cannot miss a Masters 1000, even even if I really want to. Yes, he can. Um, you know, the the tour is demanding, and these tournaments no, matter they a don't. lot. Um, there are certain rules in place. Just so I don't do the radio show thing of talking over clips of people and making fun of it and whatnot, I'll just pause it there. Like, this, I could talk for half an hour about this, but I'm already going kind of long. I mean, like, I mean, come on, man. Yes, Masters 1000s are mandatory, except for Monte Carlo, but the whole mandatory thing doesn't mean anything, man. Just... The, the penalty is you don't get the points. Like, they don't bar you from playing tennis because you missed a quote-unquote mandatory event. So basically, he's full of you-know-what. 
He's using that as an excuse. I mean, answer, why are you playing? Answer is, I don't know. Participation and, you know, being part of, the, of these events. And, uh, you know, I did make a deal with myself that I will not be skipping um, the next two events, that I will commit and I will come and I will make the... Um, I will uh, I'll put the effort and, and travel all the way from Europe to... to this is an absolutely outrageous statement. I didn't. I. I honestly didn't know what he was gonna say. This is completely outrageous. To try and do my best and play here, but um, you know, I no, just like. Sorry, dude. You are an idiot. If you are hurt, you don't play. I'm walking around on one leg, but I have a commitment to try and play this tournament. Shut up! Just shut up! Mr. New Age over here. Like, like this like, This is a guy that posts fake quotes on... Or he posts quotes on social media like he's like some great philosophizer. I have to do what I have to do. Um and uh, play to the minimum if, if that's uh, something that is required. Just, can you talk about the injury? What, what is going on exactly and what are you doing to rehab? Well, it hasn't been, it has been a tricky injury. Um, there, there have been a few changes that I did during the preseason which ha certainly helped me keep up uh, with the consistency and play better um, at the Australian Open Swing. And um, I did enjoy myself very much out on the court, having seen that uh, sort of transformation within my game. And uh, also technically, uh, you may notice in, in videos now compared to before that my technique might have changed a little bit. And that, is, that was part of the whole preseason thing that I was referring to uh, earlier. And that, that had a small impact on my shoulder. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a very uh, unfortunate injury at this time of the year because I had a very good, uh, strong start to the year. You know, I consider a Grand Slam final uh, a good result to start the year with and one that I was unfamiliar with before. You know, I've never done a start of the year with a Grand Slam final. So, um, uh, yeah, however, it is... Uh, it is important to, you know, keep faith in the, in the in the in the daily procedure to to get back healthy. My shoulder, you know, has had a lot of impact in the last couple of years, with the uh, constant playing and you know week to week uh, competition. And I just need to take my time and um, take the right uh, have the right medical team by my side to help me f recover to the fullest and. Um, not have complications like this again in the future. Stephanos, could you talk a little bit more about those changes that you made and sort of just what the goal is? What is it that you want to be able to do on court? Well, when you're dealing with situations like this, um, <laughs> the only thing you wish to yourself is to have a career that's healthy where you can actually compete and go out on the court. Uh, okay, let's skip a bit. Then he, you know, some plays that was kind of vital for me. Okay. Uh, but trying to get uh, very limited to what I can do on court, 
but I have a you know big love for the game, and I very much want to compete in front of my f uh, in front of the um, uh, the Californian fans, but also for fans that come from all over the world to 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 watch the event. So um, I'm doing it for them right now. Okay, he said I'm doing it for them. Well, you did it for one day. I mean, isn't the goal to do it for them for six matches instead of one, right? It's been a few weeks. Could you reflect a bit on the Australian Open? You know, what were some of the positive things? Okay, we, d we don't need to go over that necessarily. Okay, there you go. There is the, um, let's just say, uh, the inner machinations of his mind are an enigma. Schedule for... March Sunday, March 12th, 2023. This is third round action, round of 32. And there's uh, there's uh a re the, ma the the match the number of matches has been reduced enough that now I can read it um each one. Okay, we're getting underway at 11 a.m. Pacific time. First up matches Casper Ruud versus Christian Guerin. Maria Sakari versus Annalena Kalanina. Cameron Nori versus Taro Daniel. Jill Teichman versus Rebecca Peterson. Second second wave. Alexander Zverev versus Emil Rusuvori. Jessica Pagula versus Anastasia Potapova. Karen Hatchinoff versus Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Veronica Kudermatova versus Karolina Pliskova. Later on in the day, Andre Rublev versus Ugo Umber. Francis Tiafo versus Jason Kubler. 3 p.m. on Stadium One. Coco Goff versus Linda Noskova. Noskova. Um, happy hour, 5 p.m. Barbora Krachikova versus Zinyu Wang. And night matches. 6 p.m. Stadium 2. Petra Kvitova versus Yelena Ostapenko. 6 p.m. Stadium 1. Daniel Med Medvedev versus Ilya Ivashka. Uh, 7 p.m., way out on Stadium 4, Alejandro Tabillo versus Jordan Thompson. And uh, 8 p.m. on Stadium 1, Arena Sabalanka versus Lesia Serenko. Um, uh, again, pregame coverage gets underway at 10 a.m., on Tennis Channel. Match coverage starts at 11 a.m. Pacific on Tennis Channel, Tennis Channel Plus, the Tennis Channel app, and on the Tennis TV app as well. And um, that was topic seven. Okay, topic eight. Time to wrap up the pod. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for giving the download. 
little bit of a longer episode today, but I had the, enough energy to uh, get it. You know, I had enough energy to where I wanted to say some more stuff. Before we go, let's get in one more coffee sip. You know what? Let's end with the coffee sip. That's The coffee sip is going to take us out. So um, this podcast was brought to you by Argon Productions. Cue that music. It is time for a day four discussion for Indian Wells. I don't like that. See, I... (sighs) Flubbed it already. The inner machinations of my mind are an enigma.